Let us turn to God's holy word. First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six, and we'll read the entire chapter. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withhold, withdraw yourself. Now, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest in his own time he who is blessed and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it. Some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. As far as the reading of God's precious and infallible word, may he add his blessing to it. 
I'd like to also hear what we confess in Lord's Day 44. Lord's Day 44. Uh, just question and answer 113 as it deals with the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Question 113. What does the 10th commandment require of us? Answer. That even the smallest inclination or thought, contrary to any of God's commandments, never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Let's just get right to the heart of the matter. You shall not covet. I'd like to look at that in in the way of the ends of the law, the bookends of the law. Have no other gods before me, and you shall not covet. They really encapsulate everything that's contained in the law, and it gets right to the heart of the matter. And we'll look at this with two thoughts. The first of all, the spiritual nature of coveting. And secondly, the spiritual requirement of contentment. The spiritual nature of coveting. Our text here in 1 Timothy 6 does focus on, at the beginning anyway, the requirement of contentment. But the contrast is set forth in this text in way of, you shall not covet. In verse 7 we read, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, we should be content with that and not fall into the ditch of coveting, which is what is forbidden in this commandment. And it shows the very nature of this coveting. For those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Danger and the sin of coveting can be defined as to delight in or to love something passionately. To regard something that I don't have as something that is absolutely essential for me to have in order to feel fulfillment. Until I have a piece of property, a a possession, a certain type of clothing, or whatever it is, then I will be happy. Then I will be fulfilled. It's simply selfishness that begins to run us and ruin us from the inside out, piercing us, as Paul says to Timothy, with many sorrows, drowning us in destruction and perdition. And it is a command that's so basic to our sinful nature. It's evident already in our very young children. As they're playing maybe in 
playtime, in a nursery, or wherever they would be. They want a toy that their brother or sister has, or their friend has, and they want it so badly that they're going to cry out, give it to me, and maybe push them over and try to get it. And in doing so, they ruin relationship, they ruin their playtime, and they're disappointed because they can't have it, and they, they're pierced through, as it were, with many sorrows as they wail and weep and cry and carry on. It's evident even in our children, but it's also evident in us as big children. Unless we get what we want, we are pierced through with many sorrows. Upset, overwhelmed, frustrated, bitter, angry, envious, until we get what we want. Isn't that all of us by nature? Maybe it's not just money. Lovers of money have this problem, certainly. Lovers of position. Lovers of those who want to win the argument as Paul is bringing out earlier here. All these wranglings of men corrupt and destitute of truth. It's all foolish. Lovers of winning the argument, winning the day, getting your way. Whatever it would be. It's covetousness. Money is a classic example of it. Once was a hungry man. He was poor as ever. And he was passed by on the road by a very rich man whose carriage was filled with lots of gold. And the poor man only had a few little coins in his pocket. And he had a bag with him. And the rich man said to him, you can have as much gold as you want out of my carriage. But you have to be able to carry it in that bag. And if you fill that bag too full and one coin hits the ground, then you can't have it. It has to all be held in that bag. And so as he dug his hand into the carriage and takes one hand of gold, he puts it in the bag. That's enough for some clothes and some food. He looks and he puts another handful in and another handful in because he thinks, well, I need to have a... I need to have this, and I need to have that, and I need to have a house, and I need to have... And the list went on and on. And pretty quick, that bag was brimming full. It was getting heavy, and it was stretching. Well, I just need one more handful, just in case. And he takes that last handful, puts it in the bag, and the bottom rips out. He's left with nothing. That's exactly where covetousness leads us. It ruins us. It wrecks our souls. We bow down to worship ourselves and our self-gain. It gets to the heart of who we are by nature. We would all do the same thing. I'm pretty convinced of it. 
Because it really is the instigation of sin in the first place. Already in heaven was Satan's fall. If we understand Isaiah 14 to be a reference to Satan and at how Satan's fall in, in heaven, fall from, from his relationship with God, was occasioned really by covetousness wanting to be in a higher position than what God had given him in the hierarchy of angelic beings. And indeed, this is, this is really a whole area that Satan tempted Adam in as well. When he come into paradise, he's basically telling Adam, God is withholding something from you. As he comes to Eve and, and works through Eve to get to Adam, they're questioning the very goodness of God in placing him in this creation. Probably given him 999,000 trees to eat from. But there's one tree that you can't eat of. God is withholding something. And God is withholding something. He's withholding the knowledge of evil from you. And if you want to be like God, you need to eat of that tree because God is not giving everything to you. And so... Ah, that fruit looks good too. Adam and Eve ate. With discontentment and covetousness. Satan tried the same strategy with Jesus. As Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights without food, sets before Him and says, if you, just, just, here's some food. Turn... Turn, turn those rocks into bread and you could eat. You could do this. Or as he takes him to a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of this world, he covets the position and power over all the kingdoms of this world. He tempts him through covetousness. You see, covetousness and discontentment are satanic in their foundation. And in their sin. And to indulge in them is to rebel against God just as Satan did. There's nothing, absolutely nothing respectable about ungodly coveting and discontentment. Nothing. It's not a respectable sin at all. Because this sin really gets to the heart of it all. It's really the fountainhead of sin. We want what we do not have. We think we deserve and are entitled to what we do not have. And we do whatever it takes to get what we do not have. And we'll justify any means of getting it. And so covetousness ends up being the root of theft. Isn't that what happened with Achan in Joshua 7? He says, I saw, I coveted, and I took... It becomes the very root of murder. This afternoon in devotions as a family, we read Genesis 4, Cain coveting God's approval on his sacrifice, even as it was upon Abel, and, and filled him with envy, and then to murder. It becomes the root of adultery, as you see with David looking across the fence, desiring and taking Bathsheba. And then eventually killing Uriah. 
It all begins with covetousness. You could apply that to any one of the Ten Commandments. What is it that, that causes us to break the Sabbath, but coveting, wanting the day for ourselves rather than be able to give it to God in worship? Isn't covetousness really the root of idolatry? Isn't, isn't Paul even saying in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry? Isn't that what Jesus says? You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible. You can't have both. You can have money and serve God with it, but you can't serve both of them. You see, a covetous person bows down, as it were, to the very image of gold. He bows down to his money and his possessions or his power, and it becomes their God. And when trouble comes, they fly to their money or their position to hold influence and to find comfort and, and hope in it. Thomas Watson said this, that the very golden harp, he seeks to drive away an evil spirit. That is a covetous man. And that is an idolater. God's Word in the Tenth Commandment is saying, do not bow down to the God of money, of position. Do not look upon it. As our parents would say, he's saying, don't even think about it. I'm sure you've said that to your kids too. Don't even think about it. That's, that's the Tenth Commandment. But not only negatively, but also positively in the spiritual requirement that it has. And that is contentment. Contentment. That's what we see in our second point. The spiritual requirement, the Tenth Commandment, is contentment. To be content means to be sufficient. To, to understand that all that I have is sufficient for me. Jesus is teaching contentment, especially in Matthew Six, he's saying, look at the creation. Everything is provided for it. The, the, the flowers, they just grow up and they, they, talk, they, they have nothing lacking. The birds of the air, they're provided for. Will I not provide for you? You don't have to worry. I'm providing for you. Am I not sufficient? And is not my provisions for you sufficient? It's all about having peace with the sufficiency that God has provided. Well, to be discontent would, would then instead say something like, I regard something that I don't have as absolutely essential. The very same thing as coveting. And in order to be fulfilled, this is essential for me. And I will not feel like I have sufficient things until I have it. That is coveting. Discontentment is coveting. Contentment is what we are called to. And it is one of the most distinguishing traits of any godly person. Godliness, says Paul, with contentment is great gain. Because a godly person has a God-focused heart and a God-focused life. 
He recognized the very possessions that he has and the positions that he have and the power that he has. All is given by God and is to serve God in it. And so a truly godly person is not necessarily interested in being rich or influential or having lots of affluence in this world, but rather possesses an inner resource that furnishes riches and position and power in God's eyes that the world does not even understand or could never offer. A content person finds God to be their sufficiency. And to find His provision sufficient. And His grace sufficient in all circumstances. See, a godly person is one that has found that all the greed and the envy and the discontentment that a person who's coveting has, it will never be found to satisfy his soul. It will never provide rest for the soul. It will never provide peace for the soul. And it certainly won't provide a peace that passes all understanding. That's why Paul could say, Godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, contentment. Something we all have to learn. It's not some kind of spiritual luxury that just falls into our lap. And yet it is something that is absolutely vital for our spiritual, heart, spiritual life and spiritual health. And so we really need to think about contentment when it comes to, first of all, material things. Paul especially is focusing on material things in these few verses with the love of money and and clothing and food and so on. And we need to make sure that we acknowledge that riches and material in themselves are not evil. It's the love of them that's evil. And the lack of contentment that we have with or without them is evil. And it really gets to opening our hearts and prying them open a little bit and just look inside our hearts for a moment. And let me just ask you a question. If you had $1,000 in the bank and you had clothing and food on your table and a roof over your head, would you be content? What if I told you that your neighbor has all of the same things and even a little nicer and he has a million dollars in the bank? Would you then be content with the thousand dollars? You see, that's where when we pry out into our hearts, that's where we we're going to come. Would you be content? Or would you want what your neighbor has? 
You see, someone could have the $1,000 in his bank and be absolutely content with that and be the happiest person in the world. He could maybe only have $1 in his account and be the happiest person in the world because he's content. But the next person could have a million dollars in the bank and only want another million dollars and be striving and doing whatever he can to get that other million dollars and he could be the saddest person in the world, piercing himself through with many sorrows, wrecking his family, wrecking his marriage, wrecking his relationships in society. That is a poor, poor person. Even though he's rich. Are you content with what you have? Materially. Are you content with where you are in life? In your vocation? In your status in society? Or do you just want, you know, right now, I just, I just want to get to managerial level. Or I want, to, I want to get just a little bit further up the ladder. Corporate ladder. Or I want to own my own business instead of working for someone else. You're not content with where you are. Where God has placed you. I should qualify this because we need to ask ourselves a question. Does this mean that contentment means that you can't have any ambition in life? Or ever aspire to more, res- more responsibilities or more challenging jobs or, or to have more influence? Does that, that mean that? That, that? that would mean I'm discontent? No, that, that wouldn't mean that at all. You see... Paul's counsel would be the same as what it was to the Corinthians when he's telling, if, if you're a slave, and, and that's where God is placing you, and to serve others and being a slave and be cared for by your masters, that's fine. But if you have opportunity to not be a slave and to be a master, by all means, pursue it if, if God has given you that opportunity. The truth of the matter is this, that that we're all not called to be farmers or others, tradesmen or doctors or pilots or pastors, and the list could go on. That wouldn't even be good for society if we were all doing the same thing and all at the same level. It wouldn't work. And so for the good of society, how can I best serve to the glory of God and my neighbor? Wherever God has placed me, with whatever gifts that God has given me, that's what it is to be content. Are you content with your position in the body of Christ? You know, God has given us all different gifts in the body. 
Are you content with where you are in the body? You know, the beautiful picture that we have in 1 Corinthians of the body, in that, you know, the foot and the hand and the eyes and the ears and the nose and so on. They're all important for the body, but it's one body. Could you imagine in our body the foot saying, I want to be the hand because I'm sick of being the one who's got all this pressure on me and feel like I'm getting trampled on all the time. I want to be able to hold things. I want to be able to, I want to, be able to do more productive things and be a hand. Or could you imagine the ear saying to the eye, I want to be an eye because I want to be able to see. I'm tired of hearing all the time. And smelling and whatever. The list goes on. You see, God has given us all gifts to use to His glory in the church for the welfare of the whole body. Are we using those? That's what it means to be content. Are we using the gifts that God has given us for the best of the body? Or are we actually hurting the body by the very part of the body we are? That's the question that we all have to ask ourselves. Are we content in the body of Christ? To be content in the body of Christ is to serve it the best you can with the gifts that God has given you in the very place that God has placed you in. Are we content spiritually? It's a trick question. If you said yes, then I might have to have a discussion with you afterwards. This is one area that we ought maybe not to be content in. As a matter of fact, Thomas Watson wrote that there's several conditions, qualifications to contentment. In the first one, he said, we should never, ever be content in our natural estate. We should never, ever be content to be an unbeliever. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ in truth today, you ought to tremble and not be content in such a place under the wrath of God. Secondly, it says you should never be content in a situation where God is, cl is clearly dishonored. You should never be content opening your phone and watching a video that is disgusting and impure. You should never be content to be watching a movie filled with blasphemies against God. Never. Thirdly, he says you should never be content with little grace. With little fruits of the Spirit. Always striving for more. In other words, we should be content with what we have, not with who we are. 
Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, covet earnestly the best gifts. Not only covet them and desire them, but labor for them. Remembering that Paul had to learn contentment. Laboring for them in the Word. Seeking in the Word where, where we can grow together in and all spiritual graces and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Striving for them. Learning in prayer. Taking, taking the Word of God back to Him in prayer. Even as David is praying, turn my heart toward Your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and renew my life according to Your Word. O oh God, Shine Your face upon us and we shall be saved. Let us learn contentment and fellowship as we encourage one another and exhort one another even the more as the day is approaching. As we see the materialism infiltrate our society and, and, and confront the church of the Lord Jesus Christ even. Let us encourage one another on in faithfulness. Encourage one another and worship. We gather in church to hear the word of God. Let us treasure his word, even as Jesus teaches us, is more, the most valuable thing in the world. As David says in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19, it's more precious than gold. Solomon tells us that the wisdom that comes from the word of God is more profitable than silver or gold or precious jewels. Let's learn contentment in the Word of God in prayer and in church. But all of these things ought to point us to find our contentment where? You've guessed it. In Jesus Christ. You see, isn't that the purpose of preachers preaching the law of God? Declaring the spiritual nature of the law of God as we seek to wound our consciences. So that, as the conscience is wounded, the healing balm of the Gospel can be applied. Because when we look at ourselves and we find how short we've fallen in way of coveting and in way of contentment, Then we have to bow our heads in shame. Saying, Lord, I don't deserve any of Your blessing. And this brings us and humbles us all at the same level and strips us of our entitlements and causes us to give thanks to God for the amazing gift of His Son. His Son who thought it not robbery to be equal with God because He was God from all eternity. And yet came and became flesh. And dwelt among us. He even came to the very depths and dregs of humanity to be born in a stable. To be fleeing from Israel down to Egypt. To live in Nazareth as a simple carpenter's son. 
to be forsaken in this world. To be stripped and beaten and whipped and mocked and crucified by men. To be forsaken even of His own heavenly Father. And to do it all for an entitled brat and a discontent bigot like me. That's what He did. That's why Paul could say, I can be content in Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus Christ, I can do all things. You see, dear congregation, Paul struggled even after grace. He's communicating his wisdom to Timothy here in 1 Timothy. We also know of his struggles. We know that he had to learn this and that we need to learn it. And that it's only going to be through Christ that we're going to receive it. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has this thorn in the flesh, doesn't he? A thorn to teach him contentment. To keep him humble before the Lord. All of the afflictions he endured in ministry all of his persecutions, and even the weight and the challenges of ministry, all pressed upon him. And yet to hear these precious words from the Lord Jesus Christ, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And that's why Paul could say, Therefore I gladly, I boast in my infirmities, I boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. He is my contentment. He is everything I need. And therefore, I can take pleasure in these infirmities, reproaches, and needs, and persecutions, and distress. I can do it for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, Let your conduct be without covetousness, we read in Hebrews 13. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what you have. Is a God who promises you all things and to give you all things liberally through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be glory today and forever. Amen.